You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today yet again we have an amazing guest on the show. We have Associate Professor Rachel who is a plant ecologist and conservationist. Welcome to the show, Associate Professor Rachel. Oh, hi there. How are you going, Amelia? I'm pretty good, thanks. How are you? I'm well, very well. Good. Hopefully looking forward to having a bit of a chat and starting with an easy-ish, maybe an easy question, who knows. What is your job? Okay, so I'm a plant ecologist by training. So what does that mean? That means uh, that I study the distribution and abundance of plant species across Australia, in my local patch, and also across the world for various different projects. So I work in the university system, hence the associate professor part, and I trained my doctorate at Macquarie University in Sydney, but now I'm at Western Sydney University in the Hawkesbury Institute for the Environment. So the kinds of day-to-day work that we do is very varied as academics. So for instance, today I'm arranging a research contract with the Australian Research Council. I'm trying to employ a new postdoctoral researcher, so doing a bit of sort of HR writing of position descriptions and justification statements and things. I'm also revising a manuscript, so that's a big part of our job is writing writing manuscripts, writing up the work that we do, the research work that we do into papers and sending it off to journals and going through the review process. So I'm in the process of revising one of my manuscripts, which... I'm hopeful will be accepted after it's been revised. And then this afternoon, I'm interviewing a prospective master's student. So our jobs on a daily basis are very varied, but on a broader scale, I work on the ecology of plants and their conservation in Australia. So I do quite a lot of work thinking about where plants occur across the country, why they occur in those environments, what evolutionary kind of trajectories they've been on that have led them to exist in the places that they exist currently or go extinct in the locations where they might have been in the past. And then I think a lot about contemporary extinctions as well because I work on conservation issues related to climate change and other threats that are ever-present in the Australian landscape like land clearing, which are very important for understanding the trajectory of plants in our environment. So, yeah, lots of varied and interesting things I'm always pleased with the job that I've chosen and find it really interesting and stimulating and exciting. It is always nice to wake up every day and be doing something slightly different. Helps keep it interesting. That is true. Yes. Yes. There's always something different to be doing. Yes. Are you able to talk a bit about some of the projects you might be working on at the moment? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I'm about to embark on revising an analysis of mine and my colleagues that we've been working on for a few years. It's been a bit stalled, but we're finally able to get back to it. And it's an exciting project because what we're trying to do is to look at all the endemic species in each country around the world. So endemic species are just species that occur in no other in no other place. So if you sort of take the political map of the world and think about all the different countries 
and then think about all of the plant species which are sort of within their care, I guess, within the bounds of sort of their legislation for protecting species if it exists. Sort of looking at how many endemic species there are in each of those political kind of countries around the world and then what proportion of those have uh, what we call like a threat assessment, which has been undertaken for them. So how many of them do we actually understand what the extinction risk might be for that species under different threats? So those threats might be climate change or land clearing or a disease or changing fire regimes. So there's sort of over the last five years or so, there's been a lot of resources which have all sort of come together at the same time. So we now have lists of species and where they occur in each of these countries. We have lots of occurrence data, so lots of dots on maps about where a species might be found. And we can combine that information with a big newish data set of all of the threats of species and all of their threat assessments from across the world and put those two pieces of information together to examine well, what's which countries are, are doing better than others in terms of protecting or in terms of assessing their species and then what are the kind of underlying drivers of that. So is it about how wealthy your country is, for instance, like how much GDP you have or is it about the kinds of legislative protections that you have in place? So do you have lots of national parks and lots of legislation that leads to species being protected better in your, you know, within your country or is it about... The idea that the, the increasing threats or areas under particularly high amounts of threat have higher numbers of assessments which have been done. So it's a big kind of global study to try and understand what's going on. So that's my current favourite project, I guess. That's very cool. It also sounds like a huge amount of work to get all of that data in a workable form so that you can actually analyse it. Like that is not trivial. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that's probably a good point to say that science is very collaborative. And so, you know, it's certainly not just me working on this project. I've got various other colleagues, some who are really strong with the data science side of scientific method and manipulation of data. My particular specialty is spatial analysis. So I'm interested in that kind of analytical side of things when we're making maps and very interested in cartography as a child I always wanted to be a map maker so yeah there's there's certainly people on the team who really excel at the programming side of things and then there's people on the team who you know have put together these data sets you know in the past and we like to give credit where credit's due and bring them on as co-authors and have them advising about their data sets and you know really making it clear what particular parts of the data mean um, and how to put those things together and then you know, we have people who are highly specialised in understanding the frameworks that we use to assess extinction risk in species. And so they can advise on that kind of aspect of the project. So it's all about forming a team who've got enough expertise who can kind of assist you to put together a convincing paper and try and get it in the highest impact place that you can and get some, some good coverage for it as well and really kind of push the cause of plant conservation further forward because there's certainly lots out there for animals but maybe you can't hug a, a, a tree as much as you can hug a koala or something so uh, there's a handful of people who, who give it a shot but they tend to be a little prickly i'm guessing until it's released you can't talk about the results 
Well, until it's reanalyzed, I can't really talk about the results is the thing. You know, in the original version of it, Australia was doing particularly poorly, in my opinion. So we were somewhere around 27% or something of our endemic species which had had a threat assessment performed in Australia. So although there's a huge number of endemic species here, something like, you know, 95% of our plants occur nowhere else in the world. So we and we have sort of twenty five to thirty thousand individual plant species in Australia. So we're talking, you know, somewhere in the order of twenty thousand species which require an assessment. So it's a huge task. But that doesn't mean that we can't do it. So and it's certainly Australia's capacity to undertake threat assessments for all its endemic species compared to somewhere like South Africa. So South Africa has a relatively modest GDP and population size, but they put in a very concerted effort together to, as botanists in South Africa to assess all of their endemic species. And so they have something like 80 or 90% of the species which have been assessed. So yeah, it's a bit of a call to arms and a bit of way of kind of looking at countries And of course, you know, looking at countries and thinking about which ones are doing better than others. And of course, plants don't necessarily respect political boundaries. Of course, you know, they're sort of made up from a plant's perspective. But the focus here on political boundaries is because they're very, that's where legislation is kind of enacted at the national level. So we have lots of global initiatives about plant conservation, but a lot of the time the actual only legislative requirements are kind of at the national level level and so that's why we're sort of scaling back down from a big global strategy and thinking country by country which are the plants that occur nowhere else and may have no other piece of legislation that that could be used to protect them. What are some of the threats that face plants like obviously like in general we're fairly across I guess some of the threats that face animals like we even just from seeing for example like roadkill on the side of the road like fairly easy to get your head around the things that might be threatening fauna what are some of the big headline threats coming coming your local plants way yeah i guess the biggest headline threat is climate change so there's a huge amount of uncertainty about the direct effects of climate change on plants so increasing temperatures for instance so how will that impact things, the fundamental things that plants do, like photosynthesize and respire, you know, and so there's a huge research interest in understanding how plants' basic processes will respond to changes in resources. And then there's also kind of the interactive effects of climate change as well. So as we see the climate drying and increasing frequency or severity of drought conditions across the landscape, Plants can only operate within the conditions that are available to them at the local scale. So they require water and they require light. And of course, if they're not getting that water from the soil, that's, you know, if water availability is low, then species are going to have to, or individual plants are going to, you know, suffer from hydraulic stress. And so just having a lack of capacity to support functions like photosynthesis and growth ultimately. And so if we start to see that on widespread scale across the environment, of course, you know, that means that we're going to end up with higher mortality of individual trees and populations. And, you know, ultimately that may lead to kinds of shifts in the distribution of plant species. So, you know, they may need to retract from areas which get repeated 
instance of drought, they just can't establish there and they can't remain viable in those environments. So we might see contraction of some species ranges, but equally we might see expansion of other species ranges who are potentially more drought tolerant than others. And so this is how we end up seeing kind of shifting biomes through through the ages as well, like the deserts moving into particular areas or rainforests. You know, you hear about rainforests being very widespread across Australia when it was much wetter back in you know prehistoric times so climate change is sort of the major threat to plants and its interactive effects so it's interactive effects with things like fire for instance so fire itself an individual fire event is more likely than not probably a good thing for the majority of Australian plants they need fire or many of them need fire they've evolved with fire in the landscape they use it to help recruit Uh, new seedlings to clear out competition between all the other species which are co-occurring with them. So, you know, it's sort of seen as a positive, but what matters is how quickly fire reoccurs. So if you have short intervals between fire in the landscape, that's when you can really see vegetation change based on your inability to kind of come back as an individual or a population at a site. And so the changes in in climate will lead to changes in conditions for fire and even now on the east coast with so much rain around you know you might think that the fire threat is gone but of course all of those leaves will have to be dropped at some point all of that growth that's going on so it is a sort of an interesting time to try and understand <laughs> the dynamics of vegetation and think about the way that climate change will affect plants across not just Australia but everywhere you know globally yeah I think it's it's one of those things you can say oh well you know maybe the temperature will just go up and there'll be a bit more CO2 around but there's just such a ripple on effect of obviously there's fires but there's also hurricanes as well and those kind of like disturbance events that are going to come through and just like rip stuff apart so you've got yourself an interesting very complicated set of things to research there Yeah, that's true, Amelia. I mean, and the other thing that I should mention is, you know, so climate change is is there and it's a long-term, large-scale threat. But then, you know, the more proximal and immediate threats are things like land clearing, you know. So the loss of vegetation in the environment to other uses, you know, to urbanisation or to agriculture, you know, is remains the biggest challenge for the Australian environment and we're sort of seeing an interesting time in that space as we think about how to put the bush back into some of these environments that where it's been taken away and now markets are emerging to be able to capture carbon in the environment and you know trees are obviously a one method for capturing quite a lot of carbon so there's a sort of renewed interest in re-establishing the bush and, well, at least re-establishing vegetation. And I guess it's a leap to go that we would be re-establishing the bush as it stands. And so I sort of work at the interface of that as well and find that a very interesting and, and challenging kind of threat to the environment to understand, to try and do something about. Yeah, that's a, well, it's another complicated one and. I guess that's the obvious one as well as just people cutting down trees. That's obviously a threat to ecology. But then what people 
replant with it doesn't mean they're replanting with quality rather than just quantity I guess unless it's written into legislation yeah that's right so yeah trying to replace diverse native vegetation at sites is a huge challenge you know right from the there's plenty of species we can't even store their seed we can't collect the seed in big enough numbers to be able to store it even and then be able to we may not know how to germinate that the seed from many species and there's a lot of really interesting scientific challenges in thinking about large-scale restoration at the continental scale at least. <laughs> That's a fascinating one because the the whole Svalbard, uh, what do they call it, the doomsday vault the, with the seed vault that turns up on TV every two years is like this is going to save the planet. Yeah, you don't think about, well, do we actually know how to germinate things because Australian seeds, if you haven't tried germinating them at home, well, I'd encourage you to because they're quite difficult. <laughs> they're cryptic. <laughs> they're cryptic. That's a great word. They're not like a little tomato or spinach seed where you can just like pop it and it grows and they're more in-depth. Yeah, they can be very recalcitrant, we say, and there's certainly people who have dedicated their whole careers to understanding, you know, seed biology and germination science and it's incredibly fascinating and we're getting better at it but yeah the challenges of restoring diversity are really really huge yes you can easily plant a lot of eucalypts and offset your flight to hawaii (laughs) via you know planting a couple of eucalypts but you know they use a lot of water they planted in inappropriate places can increase fire risk you know and they don't necessarily provide a sort of resilient source of locking up carbon for a long time scale. So thinking about how to diversify the palette of things that we plant and how to do it at scale is another interest of mine to get me away from the doom and gloom of things going extinct (laughs) and think about how to restore things in the landscape. It's also one that you could do outside as well. You don't necessarily have to be looking at a screen all the time, which is is cool. (laughs) No, you're always looking at a screen. No, I mean, yeah, it is surprising how much, you know, you get into doing biology or doing plant science and you think you'll spend time in the field, but yeah, it gets harder and harder to actually get yourself out into the field and get stuff done. So, Do you have a favourite plant? (laughs) Do I have a favourite plant? Oh my goodness. There's so many. There's 350,000 of them. (laughs) 350,000 species. So I certainly have a soft spot for climbing plants. I really think climbing plants are pretty amazing. And, you know, so there's a few Australian climbers that I really like, some tropical climbers, but I I shouldn't – it's like singling out your children. You shouldn't pick which ones are your favourite. You shouldn't pick (laughs) favourites. But, you know, I guess it's probably – the best thing to say is probably it's the plant that's in front of me at the time because I just really love learning new plants. I really – I live with a record collector. My husband collects records and they take up a lot of space, but plant names take up no space whatsoever. So it's something you can collect. And, you know, anywhere you go, there's always a plant and you can always, you know, look around and think what's here and why is it here and what species is it? And I just like to learn about the diversity of them and think about what's what and where they are. So, yeah, probably my favourite plant's the one that's in front of me at the time. (laughs) That's a very safe answer for a somewhat insulting question. (laughs) no no not at all insulting no no I would you know it's easier for people who work on animals because they're like yeah yeah this is my favorite animal this is my you know 
this is the thing that I work on and I think it's lovely, but it's, it's a bit harder with plants. Yeah, and animal people have like a ranking in their head and everything. Yeah, yeah, those bird folk. You touched on it earlier, but what does an average day at work look like for you or maybe like average seasons in the academic world? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess the struggle at the moment, so if we were to go sort of season by season, the summer is usually dominated by grant writing or celebrating if you've got a grant and you don't need to write a grant. (laughs) So the Australian Research Council Discovery Program, which is the biggest funding program for Australian research, the closing dates for applications for that are usually in February. So that means that uh, academics are often sacrificing their summer to write their ARC grant. And, you know, then coming back to work, so everyone sort of filters back to work by now. And then you, if you're a teaching intensive academic, you've probably got a month or so before you start up teaching for the first semester. And so for many hardworking academics across Australia, that's what, you know, is the core of their business. So they're teaching undergraduates in science. So that means sort of Everything from giving lectures to advising students, especially during the pandemic, rapidly changing course about how you're going to run a prac or run a lab lab group, organizing field trips, marking, 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 marking some more, lots of marking of people's exams and their, you know, assignments and whatnot. And so that can take up a lot of your, a lot of your time for sure. I'm not a teaching intensive academic. I'm, I work at a research institute. So our main goal is to, you know, win grants and publish papers in, in high impact journals and work with, with government and industry partners to deliver research that they need to, to improve agricultural outcomes or environmental outcomes across Australia. So you know, that would sort of take up the bulk of your time, especially in the first quarter of the year, you might be doing field work. Often it's too hot for field work. As we come into autumn, that's usually when most people get their field programs up and running, especially if you're planting an experiment. It's a great time in Australia to plant out your plants because it's, you know, it's not too hot. There's hopefully been some rain around. You've got a whole year to establish them before the summer comes again. So there'll be plenty of people out April, May, June, planting out experiments and planning experiments. Over the winter, there's often conferences in the northern part of Northern Hemisphere. So that's their summer and there's often the big ecological conference, particularly in America. That's always in August. There's various conferences in Britain and Europe, you know, so there's a bit of a conference time of the year to go and share your research in the middle of the year. And then sort of September onwards, I guess it's really, you know, the year's starting to kind of, get pretty long in the tooth by that point and there's probably been 15 things crop up that you never thought you'd be doing at the beginning of the year writing grants for various things and being pulled into different papers or projects you know a few years ago it was the fires and I kind of down tools and got in and helped to prioritize species after the fires so so it can be very varied and hard to predict what's going to happen and then yeah by the end of the year everything shuts down over Christmas and we all get a couple of blissful quiet weeks from Christmas time through to sort of mid-January to recoup and come back for another round. Yeah. And just keep going. And keep going. That's right. 
and you get rejected along the way and you get accepted papers and, you know, it's you've got to be uh, kind of resilient, I guess, to stick it out. Some good highs and some tough lows. Yeah, but I guess that's the same in any job, really. I don't think it's it's just this job. How have you ended up in this job? Like was young Rachel passionate about plants or like what was your path from high school to where you are now? My Yeah, my granddad really got me into plants when I was really little. He was really into showing me how to grow things. He was a great gardener from the north of England, so he would eat completely inedible plants just <laughs> just because he could. Uh, so he was always always growing things, and, and I also did a lot of bushwalking and things when I was a kid. You know, it was really nice to get out and into the bush. So I always liked the bush. But no, when I, when I left school, I went to art school, actually, first in, at UNSW and then in Newcastle in New South Wales, which is sort of a couple of hours north of Sydney. And, yeah, I spent some fantastic years at art school, um, enjoying life, being a young person. And then I kind of, you know, although I love I love my art and I love painting, I realised that it's um, not something you could readily monetize in sort of 1998 or whatever it was before the internet even felt like it existed properly. We used to still go to internet cafes back in that day. <laughs> And so there weren't all those outlets for, you know, selling artworks and promoting yourself and self-promotion and things that were still a real gallery kind of system. And so I looked around for a job that I thought would be a bit more equitable, a bit more kind of merit-based and that would allow me to be outdoors and to travel as well. I really wanted to travel overseas. And, yeah, so I started studying biology, worked my way through my undergraduate degree, which I really enjoyed. And then from there I kind of left and worked at the National Herbarium of New South Wales. So I'd been volunteering at the herbarium. So a herbarium is like a museum for plants, basically. It's full of pressed plant specimens that have been collected from all over the, the country back to colonial, you know, early European colonisation. So there's sort of nine, something like nine or 11 million dried plant specimens across Australia. So my job was to be part of the big team that was digitising all of the information that's on each one of those specimens. So who collected it and where and when and, you know, what was the environment like where it was collected. And so all of that information, you know, needed to be digitised and there was a big Commonwealth project to do that. So I was part of that and learned a huge amount about plants working at the herbarium and learned a lot from some really wonderful Australian botanists who, you know, I feel really privileged to have learnt from and to have spent time with. And then I decided to come back to Macquarie to do a PhD. And so I did my PhD on climbing plants and their function from, gosh, I can't even remember, I think 2009 to 2012. Yeah, I really enjoyed spending three years just hunkering down and learning about something really fascinating, doing lots of field work. I worked in literal rainforests, which are like right rainforests that occur right on the coast. So it was really wonderful, really wonderful field work and yeah, and since then was lucky enough to get a couple of fellowships, which are sort of a salary and some research costs that will allow you to pursue a particular question. And then, yeah, it, you know, I sort of kept at it and sort of wound up where I am now, I guess. It's, you know, the simplified version of it. <laughs> I'm sure there were many more twists and turns uh, within it. <laughs> Did you get to travel? 
Oh, yes, yes. I must say, I really, it's certainly not the only motivation for why I did a biology degree. I just totally loved plants and thought they were totally fascinating. But yeah, the urge to travel and have a job that would kind of subsidize that travel was really a big motivator. And yes, I've done some wonderful trips. Been lucky enough to see the Finbos in South Africa, which is a sort of very low heath vegetation, really high species diversity, amazing plants. Used to be connected to, you know, as part of Gondwana. So lots of plants that we have the same kind of lineages of here in Australia. So I got to see those in the flesh in, in and think about why it was different in the Finbos. And then I worked quite a bit in the southwest of the United States in the deserts around Arizona, spent some time there working at the University of Arizona and just totally fascinating to see the cacti. We have no cacti in Australia, no native cacti, despite being, you know, covered by a huge amount of desert. And so it was very interesting to be there and think about cactus and why we don't have them and (laughs) why they have them. And just to see it's a very different flora over there to Australia. So lots of very different plant families, not just species, you know, like whole families that we don't really get here. So that was really great. And then, yeah, lots of nice trips to for working groups and things in the UK and Europe. Their flora's not that, not that interesting in those places, but there's fantastic researchers there and it's nice to go and work with them. But, yeah, I can't say I find the flora particularly exciting. But, you know, you go and see the big trees and you go and see the oaks and things and they're, they're certainly – in very impressive from a historical perspective. You think about how long they've been there growing and you can't help respect them. Can't help but respect them. So yeah, lots of travel. I've been really lucky. That's very cool. I was always sort of disappointed when you're going and seeing snow in the northern hemisphere, whether it's like Norway, wherever. And when you're kind of used to Australian alpine environments where you've got beautiful snow gums and like every tree is different and it's kind of fascinating to wander through. And you go up there and all the trees look the same and you're just like, this is actually kind of boring. <laughs> yes, yes, you see. I'm, I'm yet to conquer snow. I've only seen snow once on like a year six excursion to Canberra. So, yes, snow is like on the list of things that need to be done. But I like the, I like the warm environments, that's why. I don't go well in the cold. <laughs> I, I will vouch for snow gums in snow that it is worth the trip. It's just Big beanie and, yep. Oh, I would love to. I would love to. Uh, you did mention, though, like, what, do you know why we don't have cactus? Oh, there's been some papers about why we don't have cactus. Not specifically, you know, not called, like, why doesn't Australia have cactus? <laughs> doesn't Australia have cactus? You know, there's sort of lots of different ideas that have gone around about it. I haven't read them, the papers for a while, but I think off the top of my head the hypotheses are things like reliability of rainfall. This is certainly my pet hypothesis is that so you know we don't have in the desert you know it's defined by low rainfall but the thing that differs between the southwest of the united states and australian deserts is like the amount of rainfall might be quite similar but they get it in the monsoon so it comes in the u.s in april the majority of rain for the year falls over like a one month period they might get a second little monsoon in october if the plants are lucky, but they basically get all their rainfall in one go at one point in the year. Whereas Australian deserts are really characterized by like 
it doesn't rain much, but it, there's no real spatial pattern to it. It could just form anywhere and rainfall could just kind of occur anywhere. So, you know, the thing that cactus does well is kind of suck up water and hold on to it for extended periods of time. And so, you know, maybe it's a strategy that really works in that really predictable kind of low amounts of rainfall, but very predictable when it's going to come. So it rains and you suck it up and you hold on to it. And then it reliably rains again the next time the year after, whereas our plants in the deserts, you know, there's lots of ephemeral species. So they just sit in the soil seed bank until it does rain. Then they flower and reproduce, you know, they grow and reproduce very quickly within a couple of months and put seed back into the seed bank and it could sit there for another 10 years waiting for that rain event again. So maybe it's driven by the environment. Maybe it's just driven by evolution, you know, maybe the two bits of land kind of broke apart from each other before they were able to leave close relatives or even slightly distant relatives, you know. It's not that we don't have cactus in Australia, like cactaceae, the plant family. We don't even have many succulent species, you know. Like you could get succulents, the idea of like being, you know, fleshy and full of water. You could have that and it does occur in other plant families that we do have in Australia. They're just not really, really widespread. I guess the closest is like the kenopods, which are, you know, saltbush, and they can be sort of semi-succulent, I guess. But, yeah, we don't have that sort of strategy of like when the water comes, grab it and hold on to it with a big fleshy stem for a while. So who knows? Hmm. I like it. It's fascinating. It's not something I've ever thought about, and now it's kind of going to bug me. <laughs> oh well off you go read some papers and report back <laughs> i won't just type into google why australia doesn't yeah why don't we have cactus what's like the coolest thing about your work what helps you get up in the morning and go out there and do the exciting things and the boring things and everything in between finding out new things i guess you're constantly finding you know not the knowledge that you find is new most of the time, and I find that really motivating. I mean, I'm kind of, I guess I'm motivated by the needs of the environment as well. You know, I like to think that the work that I do contributes in some way better conservation outcomes for Australian plants, and, you know, that motivates me quite a lot. So I work quite closely with government on those pieces of legislation that I was talking about earlier, you know, to enact things like the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act to assess species under that act to be listed as endangered or critically endangered or vulnerable or equally to, you know, hopefully take species off that list of things which are endangered um, rather than just putting them on. So that motivates me a lot and training students you know, it sounds a, a bit cliche, I guess, but it is, I've reached that point in my career where I just really enjoy working with young scientists and young people who have decided that they want to dedicate their, at least some part of their life, maybe not their whole life, but some stretch of it to improving just basic fundamental understanding of plants and, you know, how they fit into the world. And I think it's a big responsibility and I, I really enjoy it. I just like seeing them kind of do well and grow in confidence and things. I find it really motivating. So, and the colleagues, there's lots and lots of great colleagues in my field who are just really who teeter between friends and colleagues, I guess, you know, and it's nice to be surrounded with people like, you know, by people like that. I really love it. 
And so, yeah, colleagues, students and interesting questions make me want to keep coming back for more despite all the, you know, despite the rejections and the, and the bad days. Yeah. I imagine it's fairly intoxicating being the first person to know something and then getting to share it with people. That's, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I can't say that I'm sort of a pure discovery researcher, you know, like there's people who really are right at the coalface of, you know, investigating phenomenon that we know very little about, you know, like I'm, I'm comfortable in saying that a lot of the times the work that I do is quite confirmatory and that a lot of merit to that kind of work as well. Although we push a lot the idea that it should all be about novelty you know, academic journals want you to send you to send the most novel work, you know, that's really groundbreaking. And I understand that and the importance of it. But there's also a huge role for confirmatory research, which proves or disproves that a certain phenomenon that's been shown in one environment actually occurs in another. And being in Australia, we do a lot of that because, you know, it's often the case that there's assumptions that are made in the Northern Hemisphere for how things work, the dynamics of ecosystems or whatever, and, you know, we're sort of constantly putting our hand up and saying, like, doesn't work like that down here, you know. Sometimes being roundly ignored, but, you know, like, yeah, there's certainly a lot of, like, having to remind some parts of the world that the Southern Hemisphere exists and it doesn't work in the same kind of ways that they think it will, especially in climate change research. There's a lot of assumptions about plants kind of moving up the mountain, shifting their ranges up mountains to track like cool conditions and things. But we just don't have those mountains in Australia. You know, we're, we're very topographically, it's very, very flat. So that paradigm doesn't really work. I think it's like 1% of the continent has alpine vegetation on it, you know, or less. So, you know, those paradigms don't really work. I'm glad there are people putting their hands up and being like, oh, just a reminder, not everything's deciduous. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. We've only got like 200 deciduous species in Australia, which is so fascinating as well. You know, it's just not seasonal enough to bother chucking your leaves away and making whole new ones. <laughs> the weather's pretty nice most of the time. <laughs> Have you got any advice for a young person who's interested in a career in ecology, conservation, plants? Yeah, any advice for them? Hmm, advice. I guess a lot of people come into conservation science with a desire to help, you know, and a, a deep-seated ideology about, you know, our place as custodians, people's place as custodians and trying to contribute back to some of the problems that have kind of entrenched in the way that humans kind of approach the world. And that's really a noble pursuit and I guess it can also expose you to a lot of psychologically unpleasant uh, stuff the more that you do conservation science you know you will be kind of exposing yourself to really deeply understanding the depth of issues that are facing the environment and the planet and if you already are someone who just loves the natural world then it can get you down at times and so I think you need to keep perspective about what you can personally can, can contribute and like how important it is to form teams, not just from the perspective of getting good quality research done, but from a support perspective as well. It's, you know, you need a good network of people around you. My advice would be, you know, be willing to move around, be willing to 
move between institutions and, you know, just because you've done your undergraduate at one place doesn't mean you should stay there to do your honours or a PhD. I mean, I'm guilty as charged. I stayed in the one place for quite a long time. But, yeah, I certainly see the value in kind of moving around and and my advice is that, you know, a well-trained domestic PhD student candidate, you know, is worth their weight in gold and you should shop yourself around. And, you know, if you want to do a PhD, you should really check out the depth of what's out there and what programs are around and what's going to suit you and get to know your potential supervisor before you sign up to work with them. You know, ask the other students in the lab what they're like. Ask students who have left the lab what they're like, you know, finish their PhD and don't have any, you know, skin in the game anymore, if you know what I mean. Just get good advice and, you know, realise that you're really in a position, you've got more power than you think in that kind of environment and so don't go in feeling like you need to do whatever anyone tells you you should do. <laughs> you should really go and examine what you want to do and make the most of the opportunities of being a scientist. There's a lot of great opportunities. So, and get good advice from lots of people, <laughs> lots of different people. I think that's a fantastic point as well. Like, yes, you know, obviously do your due diligence before signing up to a PhD because it's three years plus of your life and they're fairly intense years where things can go wrong and you need to know that your supervisor will have you back. But also getting advice from different people with different lived experiences is very important. Yeah, are there any myths or misconceptions out there about ecology or conservation or plants? I mean, there's probably there's a lot of plant myths, I know that, but that you'd like to take this opportunity to do some myth-busting of. Oh, myth-busting of ecology. Um, you're not always in the field all the time. <laughs> we talked about that earlier. You're not David Attenborough, okay? <laughs> Even the people who work for themselves, you know, and or work for consultancies, they might be out in the field a lot, but a lot of them, as life wears along, you know, they come to resent the field. It's a place that's, you know, difficult and they do love it, but it can be a very kind of energy sipping place at times. So, yes, you're definitely not in the field all the time. You're not kind of out there swanning around Steve Irwin style. Well, certainly I'm not, and no one I know is. But maybe there's a whole contingent of, of ecologists who are spending way more time in the field. But, you know, if you want to be kind of outdoorsy and, and have that style of career, then you're probably better off in, like, outdoor education, frankly. Like, And there's always a place for great educators of young and old people alike. So, you know, I think if that's what you're more interested in, then try that. Myths about conservation, that everything's bad, <laughs> you know, that there's no hope. I think that's a bit of a myth as well. And, you know, as we've kind of seen, you know, there's certain parts of the media who are, you know, really interested in reporting on the failings of conservation practice or government strategies for conservation, you know, and, if you're constantly exposing yourself to that style of information about conservation, you will end up thinking that it's all doom and gloom and, you know, there's not really, we're not really doing a particularly good job, but there's certainly lots of things to be cheerful about in conservation. And I think we need to focus a little bit more and be a little bit more optimistic wherever possible. You know, I'm not putting on rose-coloured glasses. I 
sit on the threatened species scientific committee i know the depth of the issues that are that are before us but i just encourage people i guess to be a little to at least retain a bit of optimism that we can put things on the right kind of trajectory even if it's at very small kind of local scales right up to you know things that we can implement nationally have certainly come a long way and other myths about being a scientist i guess just you know, those myths that are always still around about, you know, lab coats and being a nerd and things like that. I just, you know, there's certainly plenty of nerds and I, I salute them and they're, they're geekery, lots of people who are into that, but it's pretty diverse as well. You know, you can be what you want to be in science, I think, and it doesn't have to be a stereotype about how to be. Yep, you don't have to look like it does on the TV. Yeah, that's right. Like all things in life. Yeah, basically every career. That was a lot of myths, as it turned out. That was fantastic. (laughs) Is there anything else we haven't touched upon that you would like to share? I don't think so. I think just get out there, you know, get out into the bush and enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, advocate for it. It doesn't just magically stay where it is, you know, without protection and without people kind of caring for it and talking to their local MP about it or, you know, put the environment right up there as something that you're willing to go into bat for because it was something during the pandemic that was just there for everyone it seemed you know I mean we're still in the pandemic but it just feels like a lot of people counted on the environment during that time as a place that they could get out into and feel free and safe and enjoy themselves and I you know I think it's time that we kind of paid back a little bit and went into that a little bit more for the environment and don't just assume that it's, it's going to be there and really start to care for it and love it. And there's enough Australians, you know, to get behind it and, and advocate for the environment. So, yeah, I guess that's my two cents that I would add. I like it. And, yeah, when you get, get a moment, do reflect on when you're in lockdown, if you're in lockdown, like, you know, how – freeing it was to look up at the trees or the canopy all that sort of stuff for all those picnics that you all went out and had I know pretty much everyone in Melbourne went out and had a picnic <laughs> you you need to that doesn't sort of come out of nowhere those areas haven't been paved over because people have advocated for them so yeah people have fought for those places and those trees and yeah just watching the spectacular amount of growth that's going on over the last couple of weeks of isolation and various COVID bouts and things it's just been such a joy to watch it and watch Australia come to life with so much rainfall it's just been marvellous I've loved it so green so green yep better than so brown (laughs) yeah yeah and like the sort of crunch as you walk across the grass yeah yeah so just to wrap up, have you got a shout out for us? Have you got a virtual high five that you'd like, you think someone's doing a great job and you'd like everyone listening to give virtual high fives to someone, an organization? Oh gosh. Well, I would give a high five to the ARC Center of Excellence. So we, we haven't talked about them, but you know, so we haven't no. a new seven year. Yeah. It's a new seven year program that's just been funded last year and it sort of brings together multiple universities across Australia to work on this idea that we can integrate the natural adaptations of plants into crops to improve their yield and resilience under future climates. And so 
And I think that the program that the COE have put together is really fabulous. It's really supportive of early career researchers. It's really got some spectacularly successful senior scientists who are, you know, just are so inspiring to listen to. And I'm really pleased to be part of it and to, you know, see where it goes over the next seven years or so. So I do think that that's probably my primary shout out at the moment because we're just getting it started at the Hawkesbury Institute now, our node uh, of it, which is led by Ian Wright. And yeah, I just shout out to Ian for, you know, bringing me in and seeing where we can take it over the next couple of years. It's going to be great. So that is actually a lot of people that you need to give high fives to listeners. but <laughs> That's a lot. It's a lot of people doing a lot of, well, starting a lot of cool research and obviously we'll need to keep an eye on that because improving yields, improving crop like resilience against change is uh, quite important to all of our dinner plates and breakfast plates. So, Yes, exactly. We, we would like this research to be done. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> we'll get on to it for you, Amelia. Uh, yes, yeah. If you don't mind reporting back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, feel free to send through samples as well. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Rachel. It has been an absolute pleasure and we're all going to have a much deeper appreciation for our beautiful endemic species in Australia. Oh, thanks, Amelia. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee, and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.